You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Let's Pharmanize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Shane Gerritsen. And I'm Cal Vandegrift. And I'm uh, Dr. Jordan Smith, Assistant Professor of Clinical Sciences. Today we're going to talk about the rumors of infertility associated with the mRNA vaccine. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. So we've got a lot of information for you here today. First, I'm going to introduce somebody very special. We have uh, one of our first professors joining us on the show today, Dr. Jordan Smith. So today we have Dr. Smith with us. Dr. Smith graduated from the University of Michigan. Big Ten champion. Heck yeah. 2012. He then went on to go to a PGY-1 residency at Moses Cone Hospital in Greensboro, North Carolina, just outside High Point University, where we are today. Then it looks like he went back to Michigan for a couple of years, went to Wayne State University for a fellowship in infectious disease and pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic something. <laughs> yep, that's how I would describe it. Well, I'm glad we have you here. I hope it's an interesting conversation. Yeah, well, it, you know, Cal, that's actually not a bad way to describe the fellowship. <laughs> Pharmacod- PKPD something stuff. <laughs> yeah. It was, it, was, it was an interesting couple of years, a very interesting couple of years. How are you? I'm doing well, and I appreciate your calling me special, but, you know, I'm just here to chat about COVID-19 vaccines and uh, the potential infertility or maybe potentially not potential infertility that's involved with them. Yeah, yeah. So that's hopefully what we're going to accomplish today. We're going to dispel some of those rumors. Have you yourself encountered people talking about those rumors? To be honest with you, I've heard a lot and we can get into any of those uh, throughout if you want to. But this one for me is reasonably new. You mentioned it in the email the other day. I said, well, I mean, I'm not surprised people think that, but I also hadn't encountered a lot of folks asking me about it. Okay. Well, then let's jump right in. So for me, this has been a focal point of discussion that I've been hearing about. Some mm-hmm. friends and colleagues of mine have expressed this somewhat warranted concern over the potential long-term effects of a relatively new vaccine technology and its impact on your overall health. The main issue that I wanted to address today are the rumors, like I said, of future infertility from the COVID vaccine. It's a concern that I, I totally understand. It's a technology people have never heard of mRNA vaccines, and I think a lot of people are understandably cautious. That's one of the main reasons that I wanted to do this episode, so we can hopefully dispel some of that unease and make maybe make people a little more comfortable about receiving the vaccine. The main vaccine technology we'll be discussing today, like I mentioned, is the mRNA vaccine, or the messenger RNA vaccine, which is the vaccine technology employed by Pfizer and Moderna, two of the three vaccines currently approved in the United States, which is where we are right now recording this episode. So I don't want to talk much about the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2 itself, because I think we and other parties better equipped and more educated have belabored the topic. I think we've, I think we've talked about it at least two or three times. Definitely. In episode, so I our, think, I think we our got fourth it. episode. We've just passed like our, our year anniversary of, of talking about it. Oh, yeah. January 18th was when we released We got our- the early scoop on that. We, if I, I pulled up the PowerPoint slide uh, a few weeks back that I guess the current third-year pharmacy students would have had, you know, when they were in your guys' shoes, I just, just a slide saying, oh, 
by the way, there's this novel coronavirus. At the time, we weren't even calling it COVID-19. And I just, when I saw that getting ready for class for you all this semester, I just, one of the dozens of times uh, over the past couple of weeks, I've just gone, oh my God, uh, it's been a year or, oh, you know, how much we didn't know at the time. And for me, talking about sort of being a year, it's March 11th, 13th, the day Rudy Gobert licked all them microphones right. and the NBA shut down. Yeah. Uh, that was like, oh, it's here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's coming up. That's like the big, <laughs> oh, oh my God when moment. Like, yeah. He yeah. doesn't. He doesn't care. Oh, but well, see, basketball, right? He, he's, he's a yeah. big Michigan fan. For yeah, I, that I am. Big Ten champs, by oh, the way. Uh, don't Just edit me. that out. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> after last night. Uh, but um, the the reason, because I, I, I watch NBA a little bit too, but not not like religiously. But that just it just took over. Like all of a sudden, the that happens. The NBA is canceling their games. The colleges are canceling their games, and the conversation just shifts to these dominoes falling. And then all of a sudden, it's extremely real, and it's here. And that's and that not so much the NBA side of it, but just the the culture had arrived at a point where this was serious and it was going to be a thing. At least for me, that's where it just kind of that's where it hit. You know, that's like predating even masks even a little bit. That's oh, just well, all we're just like. Yeah, we're just like, what is this? It was still, it was still the, um, the we weren't even supposed to wear them, mm-hmm. right? Well, uh, which, by the way, you want to talk about getting off topic? Right, but anyway, because if if you all are familiar, or what I had always been taught uh, as a pharmacist, as a pharmacy student, you know, oh, masks, uh, they're good if you have a disease, but you know, for preventing from getting it, you know, not that useful. And it's one of those things that you sort of accept as just like dogma, you know, like, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, that's what I've been told. I guess, guess that makes sense. Sure. Like I've never really thought much about it. Um, and then, you know, lo and behold, it's like, no, it doesn't make any sense. How does that make sense? It really doesn't. And in the past year, we've seen just these dramatic shifts in even what the standard was at the time, you know, at March last year. Well, we don't think you really need masks. May last year. Okay. Now there's a statewide mandate because we realized, yeah, they are pretty important. Now, what, a couple months ago, it turns out two masks is good. Like, well, <laughs> could, you know, can you figure that out back in last year if it's really, but I mean, that's all beside the point. The reason I bring this up is it's it's been an important lesson in even when things seem like they're just central or readily believed and, and honestly not something you would even push against for any uh, legitimate reason, or maybe it's maybe it's not as deep as we think or as strong as we think in terms of the science, like like the, the mask thinking like that, you know, just one example. That's uh, definitely an observation that I think a lot of us have had is that there's been just pouring out of new information about this virus. Yeah. Even when I was reading the, what, what inspired me to do this information about the, the infertility, some of the things that I was reading about, a number of really interesting things I learned while reading that may be new to some listeners, probably not to Dr. Smith, but mm. they were new to me as well. I haven't read much new incoming information about COVID since the start of the semester. So the new information, I'll kind of sprinkle it in as we go along. Let's talk first about ACE2. ACE2 is one of two protein structures involved in the COVID-19 infection process. We know what ACE2 does, kinda, and that remains to be the more important potential drug target and the focus of the medical community's general concern. It was one of the earlier facts gathered about the virus and remains to be one of the more heavily studied subjects, as well as the S-binding protein to which ACE2 connects. You may have noticed that I said one of two protein structures. Future Oncology published in July of last year, pretty early in the COVID maelstrom, that there is an additional protein structure exploited by SARS-CoV-2, and that is the TMPRSS2 enzyme, which I've called the Temptress enzyme. 
and I really hope that that picks up and people start calling it that. Needs to be I thought a it thing. was pretty spicy. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is. I don't, have you? Are you familiar with the the temptress? The temptress is is new to me. Okay, so this is a preliminary step to the actual ACE2 binding. This is just based uh, on my understanding. Uh, some of the pictures and diagrams that I saw were kind of confusing. Sure. Um, as immunology can be yeah, sometimes. So the enzyme cleaves the S protein, activating it and allowing it to bind to ACE2. I thought that this was interesting, and I won't delve into it much, but there's some new theories circulating that this could be the reason that we've been seeing higher cases of severe infection in men, not necessarily related to ACE2, but rather to Temtris2. Because of the Temtris2 expression in the prostate and testes, particularly in the Leydig and Sertoli cells, and the fact that the Temtris2 is upregulated in the presence of androgens like testosterone, I don't know about you guys, but I have a ton of testosterone coursing through my veins. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you can tell by my five foot seven, 140-pound frame. You can <laughs> yeah. clearly tell from my super low baritone voice. <laughs> so it's also implicated in prostate cancer, and don't ask me how because I didn't write it down. Now let's talk about women. The female reproductive system it has a very negligible expression of either ACE2 or Temtris2. PLOS1, which is a, a journal, I don't know what PLOS means, P-L-O-S, they published a study in December, really recently, discussing pr presence of ACE2 and Temtris2 in the uterus, myometrium, ovaries, fallopian tube, and the breast epithelium. And the studies show very low expression of the structures compared to other organs, suggesting that these tissues are not likely susceptible to COVID-19 expression. Are you guys familiar with like the general presence of ACE2 throughout the, the body? Mm. There's like tons in the lungs, obviously, but there's also tons in the kidney, colon, nasal um, passages various too, other right? nasal passages to various other organs throughout the body. Not a lot in the eyes. I think, we did a project on that. I think one of the main ports of entry for COVID is through the nasal passages, through oh, yeah. that, ACE2, yeah. that ACE2 receptor. So yeah, that's a big one. Definitely. Well, this study was looking at like key differences between men and women in the, in the ACE2 expression. Right. That might be assume, something more in like 10 years that we might figure out a little bit more yeah. when, when COVID hopefully is not so rampant amongst the society. Yeah, I hope so. 10 years mm -hmm. from now, geez, I hope it's going to be a, a long forgotten memory. <sighs> oh, I don't think it'll be forgotten. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try to forget it. Yeah, that. maybe. So that's COVID-19. We know the long-term effects of COVID-19 are pretty much unknown at this point because it's it's barely been over a full year since it was even discovered. Based on this, this information and what we know about viruses in general, there is definitely valid concern that COVID-19 itself could impact reproductive ability, potentially. Maybe a little more so in men than in women. Interestingly enough, based on the, the congregation, congregation of receptors, and it remains to be seen. It's all theoretical right now. Uh, I wrote a joke. It's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll tell it anyway. So... Uh, <laughs> Throughout all of history, from the very first steps taken by man to the early downfall of the Roman Empire to the Bolshevik Revolution, I think we can all agree that humanity's greatest vulnerability has always been the testes. Mm -hmm. Now, in our darkest hour, even all these centuries later, the proverbial exhaust port on the death star of mankind, if you will, persists. But unlike this analogy, humanity's going somewhere. Your next question is probably, Shane, does this metaphor make SARS-CoV-2 Luke Skywalker? And to that I say, next question, please. I like to think of it more as like Han Solo. I don't know. Han Solo. I'm feeling Han Solo more than Luke Skywalker. Corona Solo. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mm. Then does Corona sort of 
I'm trying to think of it like how it goes on to sort of realize the folly of the dichotomous power system we've set up and not be a zealot for its sort of core principles it established in the earlier trilogies. I don't know. There's a lot to work with here. Uh, you know, <laughs> I may, maybe we do an episode later. The Star Wars analogy. The Star Wars. The Star Wars theories. Something else. Well, the question is, if it is Han Solo instead of Luke Skywalker, who is Greedo and who shot first? Mm, Good question. Would Greedo the be the bat? Maybe. Are we, are we digging too far? Is that? Well, I like to think Han shot first, so yeah. that wouldn't make a whole Definitely. lot of sense. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't think this was designed to be a Star Wars analogy. No, it's not. <laughs> that. So let's talk about mRNA vaccines. Mm-hmm. This is why we're here. The reason I've summoned you all. Shorthand version of the theory behind mRNA vaccines and how they function. One of the unique characteristics of the SARS-CoV-2 virus are the lovely, huggable spikes coming out of all sides like a koosh ball. mRNA takes the genome of the virus that codes for the spike protein and uses it as a blueprint that enables your own cells to make the spike proteins, which are then recognized by antigen-presenting cells, and then that incredibly spicy, complicated immune cascade continues until we have memory B cells, which can last a really long time. And now they have seen the enemy. They are trained to recognize that characteristic spike protein, and they can quickly identify and release antibodies and other signals to activate that immune cascade. So now we come to one of my favorite parts of the episode, something I've just christened Storytime with Shane. Mm. Close your eyes, please. You know the rules. I love this. Imagine, you're a B-cell. You live in a quiet neighborhood in a little town called the Uterus. It's a beautiful spring morning. Birds are singing, the sun is rising, the cold morning air tickles your mustache as you walk briskly across your front yard to the mailbox to collect this month's edition of Better Bones and Organs. Get it? Like Better Homes and Gardens. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. So stupid. And something catches your eye. Who's that? Walking down on the other side of the street, seemingly up to no good? And hang on. Isn't he wearing the same shoes as that guy they warned you about at the last neighborhood watch meeting? You hike up your trousers. It's time to put those Taekwondo lessons to good use. What do you do next? You can open your eyes now. Well, if we're a B-cell, they're not doing anything with Taekwondo. That's true. They're not fighting anything. That's true. But they're going to potentially start something, right? Maybe? Maybe. Okay. Start a riot. With this narrative, I wanted to envision the theoretical interaction between a B-cell trained to recognize SARS-CoV-2 and a little protein called Syncytin-1. I've heard it pronounced differently. Yeah, I actually was uh, having to try to figure out how to pronounce it as well. Uh, I saw a Syncytin, Syncytin. Yeah. I think either is perfectly acceptable. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've it, heard syncytion too, but I like I like syncytin one, so I, I think that's what I'm going to roll with. So yeah. syncytin one is a cell-to-cell fusion protein whose primary function is placental development. Its big role is actually creating the channel itself that supplies nutrients from the placenta to the growing fetus. Now, how is it involved here? Why bring it up? Well, as you may have noticed, our intrepid B cell caught a glimpse of syncytin one walking down the street. Syncytin-1 shares some structural traits in common with the S-protein spike on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Obviously, 
Headlines began circulating after this information was released that read, can COVID vaccine cause infertility? Postulating that the mRNA vaccine could train your immune cells to unintentionally attack the developing placenta. And those concerns are valid, certainly, and they've been addressed. Researchers with the Women's Specialty and Fertility Center in California investigated this avenue and determined that the protein has vague resemblance to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. However, does this mean that the immune response, once capable of recognizing the target protein, would then also target syncytin-1? It's very, very unlikely. Antibodies, as we know, are pretty specific. Cells can form antibodies to recognize bacteria, viruses, allergens, you name it, and they're all unique. We can actually exploit this capability of antibodies with monoclonal antibodies, which are drugs, being highly specific and, and very effective. Also very expensive, but that's unrelated. It's like your local Walgreens and a Papa John's three states away have totally different phone numbers, except each one has a particular digit, say a seven, in the same place. If you line the numbers up, none of the digits match except for the one. If you dial Walgreens, Papa John's isn't going to pick up. I'd hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Be an interesting conversation with your pharmacist. Papa John's, they just started doing stuffed crust, didn't they? Mm. I think I saw that. So. That was like Pizza Hut's thing, and then like Papa John's. Uh, yeah, yeah. I love stuffed Pizza crust. Pizza Hut is gross, though. It is, except for stuffed crust. That's good. All right. And now, a word from our sponsor. In a world where you can start your own podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and many more, comes an application designed for podcasters all over the world that allows you to create, upload, and edit episodes post on the schedule, and run ads on your show that will pay you from day one. That's right, a totally free way to make a podcast. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The other flaw in the thinking is that lots of viral protein structures could resemble structures in the human body, and those same antibodies would be produced after a typical infection with said virus. So getting the flu or herpes or a rhinovirus doesn't cause autoimmune disease with antibodies targeting self-cells. Before we wrap this up, Cal's going to talk a little bit about... A bunch of different things, I bunch guess. Of different things. I, I wanted to bring up some stuff that the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is currently... They, they put out a really interesting website that talks a little bit about frequently asked questions particularly for children and for mothers, potentially even pregnant mothers or future mothers. Just want to get a couple thoughts and see what you think about what they're currently saying, because Dr. Smith mentioned earlier, it's, it's a constant revolving door in terms of these things. So the first thing I want to talk about um, is what they currently say if the basic overall Q&A, can pregnant women get the COVID vaccine? Mm -hmm. Now, we just talked about this, and we talked about the infertility. As it currently stands, based on the Center for Disease Control and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, interesting, pregnant women... <laughs> So pregnant women were not included in the early COVID vaccine studies, but some participants do say, but some participants were either pregnant or did not know that they were pregnant during the course of the study. So likewise, tens of, tens of thousands of pregnant women have been immunized since the COVID va vaccines came out. Many of them have been monitored through the CDC. And the good news, according to this, says that there is no concerns found and that the vaccine works and Pregnant women will continue to be monitored, but no issues are, have arisen since then. That's awesome. That's, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that makes a pretty good amount of sense. I, I mean, uh, speaking specifically to uh, sort of the people didn't know they were pregnant when they were enrolled in the initial trials, uh, and, and this, 
pregnancy and infertility, of course, are separate entities, but in terms of harming a fetus or harming uh, the potential uh, child in someone who is pregnant, there were 11 pregnancies in the control arm and 12 pregnancies in the experimental arm. I think that was the Pfizer trial, not the Moderna one, but one of the two big mRNA vaccine trials. And they came out fine. You know, accidental admission to a trial that wasn't supposed to, you know, to let, like you said, Cal, the people didn't know and they ended up having a child. And I think, and, and Shane, you did a nice job bringing it up already, but the risks of coronavirus during pregnancy are valid and and worrisome and and someone you know what's going to happen to that fetus if you need breathing treatments you get on a ventilator you need uh, some high level of care that devoted is keeping you alive not your resources are being spent you know nurturing and bringing that child to term uh COVID does have increased risks of preterm delivery. It does have, of course, the potential to be severe in people that get it. Um, and I think in uh, going along with what you were saying earlier, Shane, getting vaccinated, it's scary. It's new. Getting COVID, all those same problems with the syncytin, syncytin, syncytion, uh, the, the, the protein of interest, they're going to happen with infection as well. If, if we're thinking along those lines, these antibodies being developed against a piece of the virus that would be potentially autoimmune. Mm-hmm. And like you said, we, we don't get autoimmune diseases from routine viruses on an annual basis. So it, it all of this works together for me to feel good about seeing things from like the, the ACOG or the CDC that suggest, yes, we're aware that this hasn't been studied in a large amount of pregnant patients. However, the benefits at this point would greatly outweigh the risk, especially if you fit into a category that's likely to do poorly with COVID. I'm inclined to agree with you know where, where these folks are coming from. Now, what do y'all think about, just before I, I release the information, I guess, to you both, what do you think, what do you think ACOG may say about getting the vaccine if you're currently breastfeeding? That's a good question. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's actually more than fine. Yeah. ACOG says it's um, in strong support of this approach. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I knew that I cheated, but that's okay. That's okay. That's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you asked. You know, that's okay. You can ask the slow pitch. You know, that's, that's something we do in class sometimes. Like, hey, let's make the guys feel good and, uh, you know, throw out an easy one. <laughs> so like, oh, that's hey, why you do hey, that. yeah. Like, you guys, you guys are nailing this. Here so. I thought we were actually doing well. That's what you are. Don't, don't look behind the veil. <laughs> don't just, hey. <laughs> well, that's also going to, that's going to confer some passive immunity is, to yeah. the mm-hmm. baby as well. Definitely. That's the big so strength. Huge of benefit it, yeah. for that. I mean, you're trans, the, the half of the point of, of stuff like colostrum and, and other, um, you know, actually giving breastfeeding is the passive immunity mm-hmm. acquired with ba- antibodies being passed from, you know, milk to child. That's a very important thing. So, mm-hmm. yes, uh, ACOG definitely recommends continue breastfeeding and get the COVID vaccine. Because if you haven't had COVID and you get the vaccine, there you go. You got the antibodies now. Yeah. Okay. So we just talked about the autoimmune and immunocompromise, as Dr. Smith alluded to. It doesn't necessarily cause anything autoimmune related, but there is a lot of concern about whether or not if you're autoimmune or you have immunocompromised, if you can actually be vaccinated. As it currently stands, people with immunocompromised conditions can get the COVID vaccine as long as they're not in one of the following categories, one of them being a severe allergy to any of the vaccine components, obviously, if you don't want anaphylaxis. And then secondly, of course, a history of previous allergy to any vaccine or injectable med. But other than that, um, a lot of immune-compromised state patients or, or um, patients with Guillain-Barre or anything like that, they say it's perfectly fine as it currently stands to receive the vaccine, which I know is a concern because Guillain-Barre often 
would prevent you from getting some vaccines because of the, the condition. Yeah, the, you know, the, the big concern with not so much, I suppose, autoimmune disease, but with people who are on immunosuppressive therapy, not so much getting sick, all right? Uh, this is an mRNA vaccine. I, I think anytime we throw around genetic words, it's like, oh, uh, you know, hence the infertility, you know, and and I don't mean to discount that. Shane, you did a nice job earlier talking about there's warranted concern there, right? Like we we don't know this technology. It's new. Of course, you're of course, you're going to be concerned getting a shot. But mRNA, we're bypassing all that stuff where we could have any hope of incorporating anything interesting into our own DNA. You know, it's we're, we're using our cells machinery just fine, but it's only that machinery. We're borrowing those ribosomes. Mm-hmm. We're not intercalating anything into our genetic codes to produce these antibodies. So it makes sense that we wouldn't worry about producing disease. And so these are these are in essence, you know, inactive vaccines. These are not live attenuated, the, the risk of, you know, replication or anything like that. So all that to say in an immunosuppressed person, not so much um, we'd worry that, oh gosh, they might get sick from it, but are they going to mount in a response? You know, is it going to be effective? That's, it still seems very effective in those populations. It still seems very effective in older patients, but as people age, their immune systems get a little bit weaker. And if you dig into the data that have been published on these flu shots, the antibody uh, titers are reduced as we age and in immunosuppressed people. So I think that's where not only is it recommended, but yeah, like get them in there, like to, you know, do the best to get, get those antibodies built up as possible. So I know we've talked a little bit ad nauseum in terms of COVID. We've tried to stray away from COVID like as much as we could. Because like physically? That, well, that. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, only one out of the two of us has had COVID. To this was it one out of three now? So you brought me oh, in. Oh, one so. out of three. Yeah, Perfect. Yeah. yeah. Just just me. I was, so I was the lone infected. It's been like a month, right? It's been, yeah, just over a month. Okay. So I wanted to talk about this. We, you know, we talked ad nauseum about COVID. But one thing we haven't brought up yet is the, uh, the overall prospects of the vaccine and how long the immunity that you receive is going to last. So I think it's important that we bring it up. So as it currently stands, right now, studies show that if you had a COVID infection, scientists feel confident that you're not going to be infected within 90 days of the infection. Reinfected, I should say. 90 days. So you get 90 days. All right. That's not nearly anything. Um, But in terms of the vaccine trials that, you know, some started in July... And, at, you know, up until December, until they stopped the initial trials, it seemed like their immunity was lasting that entire time, the whole six months. But the question is, and I guess the general public may may wonder this, you know, is this going to be a yearly vaccine? My initial speculation is yes, it's probably going to be a yearly vaccine. So a couple of things on that. It is absolutely an incredibly important thing to think about, right? How long are we immune once we get vaccinated? How long are we immune after infection? And a couple of things have been published that are quite interesting. Uh, You know, going back to the plus one comment earlier, which by the way, is just uh, the OS is open source. Um, I forget what the PL is. Uh, Very nice journal, good information there. So something worth reading. Uh, So, you know, no hesitation there. Uh, I think it was in plus one. It may have been science. There's a very nice article looking at overall immune response out to eight months after infection. Oh, wow. And now we talk a lot about antibodies. Uh, Shane, earlier, you you brought up though, you know, memory B cells. There's, you know, of course, there's also T cell response. There's also uh, 
so many other pieces to our immune system. And what the, these folks did in this study that was really interesting uh, and worthwhile was, okay, yes, antibody response, antibody titers. That's how we that's how we kind of test to see if the virus has been there. You know, after I got vaccinated with my second dose, the antibody titers finally turned positive. I was like, <laughs> you know, it was exciting. Uh, but uh, that's one small piece of it. And what these people did, you know, these aren't readily available lab tests to do for the general public, but they're able to look at uh, response with our memory T cells, with our memory B cells specifically, out to months and months after the fact. So combining what did our antibody titers do along with what is the presence of our memory B cells? What is the presence of those memory T cells uh, that have uh, been exposed to the virus? And that immunity out to eight months looks fantastic. It looks like it's there. So I feel pretty decent that that exposure to the virus or getting sick with the virus um, definitely produces some kind of long-term response. But that said, I don't think it's a function of our bodies losing the ability to, to be immune to that strain we got sick with or got vaccinated against. Uh, but I do think the shifts we're seeing in this virus are going to be problematic. And so what does that look like? I don't know. I, I think depending on the strain that you see that have come out. So you've got, of course, the British strain. You've got the strain uh, from South Africa. Uh, anymore, there's a Brazilian version. There's a California strain, the you know, USA. Uh, uh, there are multiple, multiple variants, and they all have uh, different genetic variations in them that sort of render them either largely responsive to sort of our currently available vaccination procedures and, and the in vitro we've seen that, like the British variant, for instance, responds pretty well to some of these monoclonal antibodies that are currently approved for the treatment of COVID, uh, responds pretty well to people's serum that have been sick with COVID before. But the South African variant that came out, the mutations in it rendered it much more able to evade some of the um, antibody responses that people were capable of producing that had been sick previously and who had been vaccinated. You know, we've seen in the vaccine trials that have been conducted in South Africa, the efficacy is lower. So, all of that is a very long winding way of saying that I, I think you're probably right on the on the head there, Calvin, that we're looking at a situation where boosters are almost inevitable. Now, how often? I, I don't know. I don't know if it is a yearly thing. If this thing gets to a point where it's so subdued uh, or suppressed is probably a better word that it's not out there mutating constantly, like maybe it doesn't become such an issue because historically coronaviruses are not the most mutatable types of viruses. These viruses, uh, as opposed to something like flu that just sort of replicates like crazy and doesn't really proofread uh, its genetic code when it's doing so, the coronaviruses are actually notorious for proofreading as they replicate. These are not sort of the, the Wild West types of viruses we think of as easily mutating, but because there's so much of it in the world right now and so it has such an ability to live and, and grow and replicate, it's found a way to do this. Um, so rates go down. Maybe we don't see it change as quickly as it's currently changing. I, I, I don't know, but I, I'm inclined to sort of agree with where your speculation's at on that. So I don't want to get too political, obviously, as we are. And we pride ourselves on being a non-political yeah, we're non-partisan uh, podcast. Here. But mm -hmm. I do, I do want to know your current opinions, and I know we're running a little short on time. But Texas just became, popped up in the news, and it was pretty important mm -hmm. because they became the fourth state to, to revoke all of their mandates on COVID. Mm -hmm. And to me, I mean, I'm a pharmacy student, but I know, you know, just enough. Um, when Houston's coming out, and they're, they are currently in the United States, they have the most strains of COVID in the world. They're the only city that has that many strains of COVID. It just seems like they came a little bit too early with that. Is there a concern there? Um, 
Uh, don't mean to laugh. I don't know if you said that the way you said it to make a joke or not. But uh, <laughs> yes, yes, of course, there's a concern with that. I, I over and over over the past year, uh, number go up, bad. Uh, we should probably do something. <laughs> number go down, good. We should stop doing the thing we were doing to make number go down. Right. Um, I was talking about this with with the P3s and the elective yesterday. Like, we're at the best place we've been in a while which is really good. Uh, vaccine production is ramping up. That's also really good. So the way I said it was, I hope that this, frankly, ridiculous decision ends up being okay. I don't mind if these people look right, because that means that it didn't get back out of control. Um, you know, it's, they'll be right, or, you know, they'll, they'll whatever, for the wrong reasons, but hey, that means people didn't get sick, that means people didn't die. And I think what worries me, and what, you know, has been the whole story of the last year, is that it's the folks that we don't necessarily have to, well, that we sort of turn a blind eye to in general, that are getting sick, that aren't getting vaccinated as quickly, that are still probably subject to a lot of the harms that might come of this if mutations occur and if, if we see spikes in disease. That's a huge bummer. And, uh, you know, and also it's not their fault that that decision was made, um, you know, so just got to hope for the best for those folks and see where it goes. But yeah, I don't, I don't feel great about it. Yeah, I'll say that. Do you have any take on that, Shane? I, I agree with what Dr. Smith said. I think that that's a ridiculous situation personally. But yeah, it's, it's weird that once numbers start looking good again, people are like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's celebrate. <laughs> just keep maintaining that to keep the numbers down even further. Right. But. I was really bummed out of myself for not immediately thinking like, yeah, Texas has got them paper hands uh, when uh, it comes to, uh, you know, COVID restrictions. But yeah, yeah. got to have diamond hands. <laughs> <laughs> COVID restrictions. But in terms of someone like me who had the virus, not like a, a month ago at this point, um, there has to be general concern amongst the people that have already had uh, amongst the millions of people that have had the COVID uh, virus and survived, of course, is do I still need to receive the vaccine mm -hmm. after I've had COVID? And, you know, that's that's something that may be up for um, maybe up for for speculation. Um, but of course, as it currently stands, the CDC is recommending everyone who has had uh, the virus to get that vaccine. But um, and I know you didn't prepare for this at all, but I'm a little bit curious as to why you think that might be the case. So, yeah, uh, that's that's a really good question. And it's one that's come up, of course, right? Like, oh, I've been sick with COVID. Why would I need to get vaccinated against it? And I think, you know, the rationale is, well, really, there's a there's a few things behind it. One of them is kind of thinking about what we had talked about a, a little bit previously, changes in the virus also changes in how your body responds to those viruses like you you've been exposed you've been sick with it you've been sick with that one version of it um you responded to it you took care of it thankfully uh doing well afterward Amen. uh but there's potential that whatever might be in a vaccine might be slightly different cause your body to respond a little bit differently potentially build some slightly different antibodies that will help out against that also I got two doses, so getting sick and then getting a dose, I mean two doses in this case, but getting another dose, you, you're just boosting your immune response. There's definitely no harm in that, because uh, the idea with vaccination is that we're essentially producing a, 
what would look like a natural immunity to that illness uh, through, you know, not getting it, but getting little chunks of it. So we're all sort of on that same boat. And what is probably most interesting to me, and this uh, this study just came out, I think, last week, the people, people who have been sick with COVID that got vaccinated, um, of course, you know, 90 days later, at least like they recommend, actually had stronger immune responses, you know, stronger antibody responses uh, to vaccination than people who hadn't been sick with it. So verified basically that it is a type of booster response uh so worth doing uh, you know I, absolutely i i think it there's certainly no harm in it and if you can you know further uh improve your ability to fight off the disease in the future i mean heck yeah go for it yeah it was an interesting paper just kind of looking at people who had been sick and got vaccinated and it, it, the immune response are a little bit more powerful um that is, yeah that's awesome ultimately the vaccine is safe Concerns of infertility have been addressed and investigated and hopefully dispelled, not by us, but by people smarter mm -hmm. than we are. Vaccines generally don't have long-term effects. It's not like medications where you have levels of medication over long-term, which can contribute to unforeseen consequences in the body. Vaccines are or one and done, or in this case, two and done. The vaccine goes in, trains the immune system, and is then destroyed by the same immune system. Long-term effects of COVID-19, however, the virus, are still being studied, but we do know one thing, COVID-19 is not a good disease to have. No, it is not. Yeah, it is, uh, to paraphrase one of my favorite films, uh, it's it's like a bummer, man. Uh, so what, so I also... I, I didn't catch the film thing. What, what, oh, Big Lebowski. Okay, okay, I got it. I'm, have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen the Big Lebowski. Oh, so it's all-timer. It's, it's a great movie. It's so there's one movie. thing that I wanted to talk about that um, I don't even... We might just... We might end up cutting this, but some of the long-term effects of COVID-19, like related to fertility, how I was talking about how like there's... Um, a high presence of ACE2 and Tempters2 in the Sertoli and the Leydig cells in the testes. They actually found some like pretty heavy damage in autopsy to the, the testes in like a small handful of patients. I, I think they, they had like autopsies on like 12 or so, and then like half of them had some pretty, pretty intense damage to the like testicular structure, like including the like the seminal vesicles and the, the tubules and stuff and the Leydig and the Sertoli cells as well, which I thought was pretty interesting. Kind of frightening too. Yeah, it's a little scary. Yeah, I, I think that absolutely is is frightening. Uh, but then I, I'm assuming these these people probably died of COVID nineteen, mm -hmm. uh, or at least of something you know, due to being extremely sick, you know, with COVID-19. And so when I see results like that, it's worth keeping in the back of your head, of course. And we know where ACE2 and, and the temptress, you know, where they're expressed. You, you outlined that earlier. Um, so it can absolutely get everywhere and cause these problems. My thought is, is that more of a problem in severely ill patients, in, in patients who are so sick that, yeah, it has started to manifest all over the body. So worrisome yes because that's if you recover from a severe situation like that um recover from a covid induced um you know clot somewhere uh covid induced uh, other you know form of the disease is that potentially going to be problematic for the long term but in someone who's not severely ill or not you know sick enough to go to the hospital just kind of thankfully maintains pretty normal symptoms and just kind of you know deals with it is is the damage being done is that happening to that extent i i just have a feeling it's extremely variable uh, among the population you know yeah thank you so much for being a part of this no, dr no. smith i think that your insight on this topic has been really really valuable it's opened up some some avenues for thought definitely i hope so that um awesome. yeah i know it's my pleasure guys i uh you know i like to think about stuff so <laughs> that's why we're here yeah, yeah.
Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music. 